Hello, and welcome to Theory Lab, the American Cancer Society's research podcast. What a guest this week. We spoke with Dr. Tom Lynch, the president and director of Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. He is a former American Cancer Society grantee. Back in 1989, he received a clinical oncology fellowship from ACS, and he went on to become a physician scientist who's taken care of thousands of lung cancer patients and helped conduct translational research that's changed the field. From professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School to director of the Yale Cancer Center to chief scientific officer of Bristol-Myers Squibb and now president and director of Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center, that is quite a career. And this was a really fun conversation. So let's have a listen. So Dr. Lynch, you're the president and director of Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. When was when did you get started? When was your first day on the job? So I, I have been uh, president and director uh, since February 1st, which is about three and a half weeks. Coming in less than a month. So what's yes. what's been your best day at work so far? So I, I have to tell you, I have been so extraordinarily impressed with the people who are here at the Fred Hutch. Uh, it's a remarkable place. People who are completely mission-driven um, to come up with uh, the science that's going to allow us to be able to treat cancer better uh, in five years. So the, the people here are absolutely fantastic. I have loved meeting the people, the scientists, um, the staff. The, the focus here is absolutely extraordinary. It, it's really a special place. So in recent interviews, you've, you've talked a bit about some of the incredible opportunities we have with big data, precision medicine, immune oncology, some other, some other areas. So I wanted to ask you about that, but in a, in a different way. What areas of research do you think are particularly ripe for transdisciplinary collaboration? So I think, I think you have to say a couple things. I think that it's important to recognize that translational science, which is the taking of findings from the laboratory and bringing it to patients, um, translational science requires fundamental basic science. So I do think there's still a very important role for investigators in their laboratory doing what I would call fundamental basic science, okay? And, and much of that's not going to be transdisciplinary because that's going to be a cell biologist who's focusing on an element of cell biology or a geneticist or, or somebody in, in a slightly different field. The place where I think transdisciplinary research will have such an incredible impact is in the world of, of bringing together impact for patients and the ability to bring together data sets and findings that can impact broader groups of patients. And now, for example, when you look at under the theme of, of precision medicine, you need a geneticist who's able to understand the best way to sequence the genes that could be involved in a given cancer or the genes that are involved in the germline that affect the patient's response to that cancer. You may need a molecular physiologist who could imply or tell you, or a protein scientist who could tell you what the structural implications of a given genetic mutation uh, could be. You may need a data scientist who could bring to light uh, what the possible intersection and relationship between that genetic mutation and other mutations either present in the population or present within that own patient's genome could make a difference. And then you need a doctor who can think about designing the clinical trial that could look at a new treatment or, or drug, and a chemist who could think about how do we think about drugging uh, this target, either with a small molecule or a monoclonal antibody. So I think transdisciplinary research is extremely important in the whole cancer ecosystem. I think it's something that 
both universities and medical schools, as well as pharma and biotech, do very well. But I think that there's an intersection between those two, because I think there's certain things that we're going to do better at the Hutch, and there's certain things that will be done better either to biotech or big pharma, but we have to work together to get there. So big data, precision medicine, I mean, these terms have been around for a while, but they haven't been around forever. Was there like a moment when you really started to, when it dawned on you that, oh my goodness, there is something massively uh, important here? So I would say there were two really important moments in terms of, of giving me a sense of what we could what we could do. The first was, you know, the Human Genome Project happened, and um, people were scrambling to try to say, well, if you remember, there were actually newspaper stories in the New York Times that the Human Genome Project has failed to deliver. And it couldn't be further from the truth. The Human Genome Project just hadn't delivered yet because it's such a complex, um, such a complex field. Yeah, a little, a little background, that, if I could interrupt. Human Genome Project, um, if you're not that familiar with it, how would you quickly summarize it? So the Human Genome Project was the effort to characterize and sequence the first, uh, the first human genome, the first, the, 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 all the genes that are present within the within a, a, a person, uh, within a person's cell. And so that project to be able to characterize um, the human genome, um, which was a, a public-private partnership, uh, Francis Collins was one of the leaders of this, the current head of the NIH, and and that was a, a, a tremendous example of big science, which was able to, um, and it took years, it took you know, nearly 10 years to sequence the entire uh, human genome. Of course, we can now sequence an entire human genome in, in approximately a day and a half, or a day, depending upon the circumstance that you're in. So it's remarkable how that technology has advanced. But I'd say that the two most important breakthroughs in, in my career, at least in the way I think about cancer, is the fact that we were able to be, be able to sequence genes both in the patient's cancer as well as in the patient's germline DNA. You could look for differences because remember, cancer develops not only in a cell, but it develops in the context of what the patient, what what mutations the patient may have in their germline. So that was really, really important, was was that breakthrough um, moment that says we could sequence cancers and we could make that part of the way we treat patients. I think the second thing was I remember being at ASCO and seeing the reports of the initial uh, benefits of checkpoint inhibitor therapy in patients with melanoma and seeing those patients who were doing extremely well, even looking like it, seeing the Kaplan-Meier curves that even suggested that some of those patients may be cured. To me, that was an aha moment. Oh my gosh, we're able to treat a disease like melanoma. When I started my career as a doctor, there was absolutely no treatment that made any difference in melanoma with the exception of the very rare patient who benefited from IL-2. But seeing that was a was an aha moment for me. So the, I'd say those two things, the, the advent of immunotherapy and then, un, then the ability to sequence genes um, in, in real time for patients, I think have made a huge impact. So before joining Fred Hudge, you were the chief scientific officer at Bristol-Myers Squibb. A lot of the cancer scientists that we fund are, are you know, trying to take their science out of the lab and bring it to patients, trying to translate it. So with this kind of experience you've got in industry and academia, what advice would you have for an academic trying to partner with pharma or biotech? And, and how can this gap between industry and academia be bridged? So I, I actually think it's a, it's a really important question. And it's a great uh, example of that relationship that's so important between people who are in academics and people who are in pharma. And I think you do have an intermediate step, which is called biotech. 
And so, so you can think about how we get from the laboratory um, to being able to create a product that can be distributed to large numbers of patients. And my advice would be is that there's that that, that intermediate step of either starting a biotech uh, yourself or partnering with an early stage biotech um, to be able to, because uh, the advantage that the biotech community has is things are at much smaller scale and um, there is a, you're much more directly involved with the science. And that allows um, people, you know, scientists are used to having a lot of control over science and, and being really involved in the decision making of when, how experiments are done and designed. And at a biotech that gives the scientist, um, the founder, the, the person who's had the important observation, it gives them much greater ability to be involved in the, in the early proof of concept that, that the biotechs are able to do. I think where pharma comes in is there's no one who can rival big pharma when it comes to thinking about how do we actually drug this target? Um, how do we create a molecule which isn't going to cause people to have liver necrosis or lung damage or have bone marrow problems? So, um, and, and if it requires chemical modifications, the chemists who work in big pharma really have a big advantage in that, in that space. So I really do see that for many scientists that that, that initial step of partnering with biotech can be a, a, an easier way to learn how to, how to work with, uh, with drug developers. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't findings that are so crucial or so obvious that they're ready to be drugged. And in that case, you know, working with big pharma um, certainly can be a, you don't have to go through biotech, you could work directly with big pharma in that setting. So, you know, I think that both of those are, are reasonable approaches and it really depends upon um, uh, how the scientist wants to position their data. I do think it's important. I do think it's important to to recognize that both biotech and big pharma need great ideas. They need great ideas coming from academia, and those great ideas aren't coming from big pharma. They're coming from labs at the Hutch, at Yale, at Harvard, at Hopkins, at UCSF. Those laboratories are still crucial. And I think about the American Cancer Society. I think about the kind of research you guys fund. That research that you fund is still what's driving advances in cancer. And don't for a second think that this ecosystem will survive without what's happening at universities and what's happening at medical schools and research institutes. Um, because those places are where the ideas come from. Our problems in cancer now, when I think about how we're going to cure cancer, still come down to the fundamental issue that we've got ideas that we need to develop. And it's these young scientists who are developing these ideas. So, you know, back in your day, you were a young scientist just starting out. You know, you get that first grant, you try to turn it into a second and a third. So what advice would you have for young scientists who are trying to do that? So, I, you, you know, my, my exposure, my, my scientific career was, was really done as a, as a clinical translational uh, person. I, I, didn't, I wasn't running my own lab uh, back in those days, but I do know how important getting um, mentorship is. And so I'd say two things. One is you've got to find funding sources. And for me, I was very fortunate to have uh, the support of the American Cancer Society. That, that funding came to me at a really important part in my career. And I would bet you if you looked at people who are running cancer institutes and cancer centers, now, I bet you're going to find that 75 or 80% of them had funding from the American Cancer Society. You probably know the number. I don't know the number. But, but it, 
it was really crucial to me because of when the funding came. It came at a time when I needed that bridge to sort of get the career going. So that was very important. For young people, I would say the most important thing is mentorship. You've got to have a mentor that believes in you. You've got to have a mentor that you can be honest with, that you can share your concerns about how the work is going. And, and there's absolutely times when things are frustrating. And I got to tell you, the first 10 years of my career, every clinical trial I did was a complete failure. Um, now, it wasn't a failure because we did learn something from it. We learned what doesn't work, and I think it's important to remember that even a negative experiment or a negative clinical trial, as long as you learn something from it, it's not a, it's not a waste or a failure. But, um, but every trial I did failed to improve outcome for patients, and it got quite frustrating. And, and having the right mentorship to sort of get me through that period and I realized that, you know, even if the clinical trial didn't succeed, let's make sure the next one takes advantage of the knowledge we learned in the last setting. I think that's really important. So I think, I think it comes down. And the other thing I'd say, other advice for younger people I would say is putting yourself in a great research culture and environment. Um, you want to be at a place where, where, where it's dynamic and people are focused on the science and they're focused on breakthroughs. And the great thing about America is we have so many places like that in the U.S. Uh, the Hutch is a great example, but so is Hopkins and Harvard and Yale and UCSF and WashU and University of Chicago. We really have a remarkable um, infrastructure of biomedical research in the United States. So I wanted to do a quick speed round, if that's okay. Run through a few questions. Who's your scientific hero? So, so I think that that in terms of scientific hero, uh, say Francis Collins, I think that what he did to sequence the human genome um, is unparalleled. That he's also an extraordinary uh, scientific leader. Who's the best teacher you had growing up? Best teacher I had growing up was um, oh god I've had so many. Um, I, I would say the 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 best teacher would. Be, uh, Mr. Seidel, who was my English teacher in 10th grade, uh, who talked about the importance of reading a text and trying to draw bigger conclusions from it than, than what the words just said. Um, and I, I, I don't, it's the first time I've ever been asked that question, and it's the first time that name has come back to me in, in 40 years. So that's a very interesting question to get. It's so nice to hear a scientist talk about the humanities like that, but you talk about really just kind of drawing meaning out of something. It applies to science, right? right? It certainly does. What was the most exhilarating moment of your scientific career? Not your professional career, you know, these, uh, you know, like when you found out you got this job at the Hutch, but the most exhilarating moment of your scientific career. That, that would undoubtedly be the phone call that I got from Daniel Haber um, that told me that the patient that, that we had that the hypothesis that he had that EGFR mutations were present in uh, that he thought EGFR mutations might be present in responders to ERISA, and we were working on this project together, and the sequencing data came back and it showed that in fact eight of nine patients that we sequenced had the mutation for had a had a coding mutation in the EGFR uh, uh, kinase. That was definitely the most exhilarating scientific moment of my career. So that was a landmark study, but could you um, a landmark study? If you know, for for the people who are curious about science but aren't necessarily um, scientists, could you could you kind of tell us a little bit more about that? 
Well, it was an interesting study. I, I, I was a, um, as I said, a clinical translational researcher. I was running a lung cancer program at Mass General, and I had a lot of patients who were benefiting from this drug, gefitinib, which is a kinase inhibitor in lung cancer. The problem was 90% of the patients weren't benefiting at all, but 10% of the patients were having incredible responses to it. And we were struggling with trying to figure out why. And Daniel Haber, who at the time was a breast cancer geneticist um, who was working on cyclin-dependent kinases in, in cyclones in breast cancer, he said, we were at a meeting, and he, and he said, Tom, he said, I, I think, he said, the more I think about your patients, he said, I wonder if they have a mutation, the EGFR kinase. And um, I was able to gather specimens from my patients. We sent them um, to Daniel's lab. The sequencing was done, which showed that indeed there were mutations in the tyrosine kinase. And that actually ended up becoming the way that a whole series of drugs now target patients with EGFR mutations. Because the initial EGFR inhibitors were not targeted against mutant EGFR. The new EGFR inhibitors, um, like osimertinib, um, are targeted against uh, the mutant receptor and are targeted to overcome you know, the common resistance mutations. And so um, that was a good example of what you said in the very beginning. We talked about transdisciplinary research, a clinical researcher working with a basic um, scientist like Dr. Haber. We also worked with a physiologist like Dr. Jeff Settlement, who actually talked about the molecular physiology of signaling um, in this a group of patients, um, and then we worked with uh, with pharma companies to think about how do you create better targets. So again, you know, it comes down to this inter this this interrelationship within the scientific ecosystem. There is there are very 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 few um, breakthroughs in science that you can credit to one person, one laboratory. Um, it, it's really a a a, a, a success of team science uh, in the most part. Yeah, that must have been a good phone call. Uh, that was a good phone call. A couple more quick speed round questions. What's the most important part of your daily routine? Most important part of my daily routine um, is, um, is, is meeting people when I walk into the hutch and, and greeting people and interacting with, with faculty and staff. I think that we all love to spend time on our email. Um, we all love to um, read things uh, in journals and in, in press. Uh, but it's really important that we still connect with each other. And I think that uh, making the effort to to reach out and connect with people, I think, is going to be is it will, will be something that's very important in in establishing the culture of a place and, and being part of the culture of a place. So if you're a parent and you're not a scientist at all, and you've got a child, a daughter, son who's interested in science, how can you support her? So I think it's really important that the kids be uh, supported in a way that sort of demystifies uh, science. Uh, science is no harder than literature or languages or politics or economics or mathematics. Um, and I think sometimes kids get scared of science. And I think the problem is it's the way that we teach science, particularly in universities. We need breakthroughs and innovations in how to teach science in universities. When I, 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 went, to, uh, I went to Yale College, and I was actually on the faculty at Yale uh, for about seven years. And what, I, what struck me was how well Yale teaches humanities. I mean, just extraordinary seminars and 
small groups and um, and ways of, of stimulating people to think about literature and, and politics and, and culture. And how we teach science is in a 250-person lecture hall where someone gets up and gives a, a completely non-interactive lecture on bonds within uh, uh, you know, in organic chemistry in, in an aldehyde, okay? Um, and it's, it's not in a way that stimulates people the way we do in humanities. So we've got to find ways of moving away from the 300-person lecture where material is conveyed and, and tests are given based on your mastery of material that you never become intimate with, the way you do a piece of text like literature. Um, now, I'm not in that field, so I'm not a teacher, so I, I don't know how to fix this. I can just identify the problem, which is we need – and so what I would say to a young scientist, particularly somebody in college, is don't let – Organic chemistry and physics and intro bio and these big lectures ruin your your sense of wonder uh, at science that you can find uh, uh, when you start doing more advanced courses and seminars. Unfortunately, there's a huge language of science that we have to that we have to learn. So I'm not arguing that that what they're teaching in organic organic chemistry is not important. It is important, but it's it, it we lose so many great scientists. Uh, potentially great scientists, um, f because they they find the the way we teach big science to be to be quite horrible. And I think this is a pro I think this is a problem that's exacerbated among groups that are not represented in science. So so people who come from from underrepresented uh, groups, African American, Latinx, w even women to a certain degree, although that's getting better, can be intimidated or, or feel like that they're not welcome or there's not a place for them um, in these kinds of uh, kinds of courses. And so I, I think that science education needs um, a jolt of the way we uh, educate people in in um, in, in other fields because I think we've done masterfully in in teaching the next generation of, of financial analysts through economics and the next generation of of writers uh, through studying literature. I think we have to do a better job of how we educate scientists. That's my personal feeling. So let's give the last word to cancer patients. What message would you have for somebody who just got diagnosed with with cancer or or who's trying to take care of somebody with with cancer now and in 2020. So I'd say it's really important to make sure that you um, that you know your options and that you get as much information as you can early in the process. So whether that's molecular phenotyping, molecular genotyping, whether it's making sure that you see more than one opinion, even if you're at a great center um, it, it, with a great reputation, I think having a couple of opinions, these are not always easy questions in terms of, of how to go about things. So I do think for a lot of patients, a second opinion can be really helpful doesn't always have to happen, but it can be very, very helpful. And I think asking questions um, is really important. Ask questions of your caregivers. Uh, be careful where you get your information. The, um, the Internet is a fantastic place in terms of, of how it's allowed the exchange of information. It's also an extremely uh, unreliable source of information. Um, and there is much out there that, um, that is completely misleading for people. And, and uh, I think if you look at the whole vaccine issue and, and the anti-vaxxer movement about how the Internet has fueled misinformation, um, I think that's happening in cancer to a certain extent as well. And so that would be another 
piece of information I would I would try to uh, give to patients is um, you know use re- rely on sources like the American Cancer Society, um, rely on on reliable sources like the National Cancer Institute um, that are able to provide uh, balanced good information to help you with your decisions. Well, Dr. Lynch, thank you very much for your time and for all you're doing for patients and good luck with your new job. Have fun with it. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it. It's great. I really appreciate the chance to talk.